you for tuning in to the Comedy Girl Crush podcast. Uh, today's guest, we have Heather Ann Campbell. Thank you so much for doing this. This is so amazing. Um, I am uh, I'm a big fan of yours. Uh, is that like, how do you feel about that? Like people being fans of yours, like, um, uh, um, it's, I mean, it's neat, I guess. <laughs> it's, I, I don't know. It's a, it's a, that's a strange question. I know. I know. It's, um, it's an interesting concept to have people, uh, even like people that you don't know love you is like, why do you love me? What have I done to do? But you've done so much. I, I would say that the, some of some of the fandom that surrounds uh, improvaganza is a little unsettling at times uh, because there are, you know, there's like a Tumblr community and a Flickr community and stuff that the people who loved that show really, 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 really loved that show. Uh, and that was my first taste of like, oh, there's a whole bunch of people out there who know my names and make little animated GIFs. And it was, a you know, jarring at first, but... I got over it. It's pretty cool now. Yeah. Or they set you up with other people on improvaganza. Yeah. Shipping. Yeah. Gosh, that's so weird. I didn't even know what that meant until recently. Oh. Yeah. Relationshipping. Well, that's cool. Those um, guys are great. I don't want to, I don't like, I don't want like, <laughs> to make it sound like I don't like, they're all great. And when I've met them, when they came out to Vegas or whatever, or they're, they're always the best, nicest people. It's just all of a sudden I felt a little less anonymous in the world. Yeah. But is that like a, like a good feeling? Like kind of like, um, I'm, I, it's not a bad feeling. Yeah. It's, it, but I, it's not a good feeling either. I don't do comedy in order to get fans. I do it because it's the thing that I'm good at. <laughs> uh, hey, speaking of that, uh, why did you get into comedy? Um, I remember you saying once that you, you wanted to do direct action movies. Yeah. Um, back when I moved to LA, uh, I wanted to be an, action movie writer and an action movie director. And I wrote uh, a couple of scripts that were well received and got me a bunch of meetings. And I did a rewrite for like Zide Perry and uh, my second one got optioned and it was, you know, very flattering and awesome. But the notes that you get in action movies aren't about story or heart. They're, uh, they're a little bit more like, Hey, can, can you make this more like the matrix or um, can you make this more like, you know, taken, and that those kind of notes are uh, not satisfying to have to fulfill. Um, and I burnt out on that desire very quickly in Los Angeles. Like two, three years uh, after I moved here, I didn't want to write or direct action movies anymore. I was more interested in what at that time had been my hobby, which was comedy. And my life kind of took a turn when I got cast in Boom Chicago. But initially... When I was in high school, uh, I got into improv because I was uh, not attracted to doing drugs or shoplifting as sort of a culture. <laughs> and I was like, oh, there's an open mic in downtown Chicago where anybody can get up on stage and do improv. And my high school, we didn't have a theater program. We had like a, like a theater, I don't know what you'd call it, after school special, like a, <laughs> like a two hours where... You know, there was a theater group that met and we'd put up plays, but it wasn't part of the education or the school curriculum. And I think when the guy who was the director left, like there was no program anymore. I don't even know if they were paying him. Oh. <laughs> uh, but uh, he took us down uh, Improv Olympic 
when I was like a sophomore or a junior in high school and we saw the very first show I ever saw was um, a show called Monster Island that Miles Stroth was in. And uh, I loved the show. I was like, this is awesome. You can just do an entire play in 20 minutes and then you don't have to do it ever again. <laughs> and it was disposable and attractive and cool. I was like, I want to do this on Fridays and Saturday nights as opposed to like going to some dude's basement and smoking pot. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's a great way to get your start in that. Yeah. Um, most people do it the opposite way. Well, do, do, drugs, it, do a lot of drugs and get an improv. Yeah. Uh, I'm a nerd among nerds. <laughs> was that like, uh, were you, was there anybody in high school that you like, I like had, were you, you were friends with and like you identified with and you guys were like partners or words this like were you very different from everybody in that sense there were uh i mean there were a few people in that theater group who would would or would not come to the jam uh at io with me but uh i'm not i when i went to college uh i pretty much lost contact with everybody that i went to high school with um you know it's uh high school's a rough time for everybody yeah so I don't know that that's too unusual, but, uh, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't really feel, I felt like I was, uh, if there was a Venn diagram of all the different things that I was interested in, like, uh, sports or theater or video games, whatever, there was a very, very small overlap of those communities. <laughs> that was me, <laughs> uh, but I was happy in the theater group and I was happy in sports and, unhappy in high school in general and so I don't yeah I, does that answer that question no it does Great. it does because uh because I kind of view you as somebody who's very uh you're very different from most people you're a very like unique person uh so I was wondering that was there anybody else that you were coming up with that you were figuring out this with and it was kind of just you huh? yeah no not really there was uh I was on teams uh at IO when I was still a teenager and was hiding the fact that I was a teenager because it was a bar and I didn't want to get caught as being under 21. And I was sneaking into the theater and Miles at that point was the bar manager. And so uh, he talks when people ask him, you know, when did you meet Heather? He always talks about how he'd come up and try and say hello to me because nobody had any idea how young I was. Uh, I looked really old as a teenager. <laughs> I had really short hair uh, and kind of looked like a lawyer. Uh, and uh, I want to see a picture now. I have I have pictures somewhere. I'll show you after okay. this. Uh, but um, I would always be real skittish around him because I was like, oh, God, this guy's going to fucking catch me like sneaking into this place and I'll not be able to perform or be let in anymore. I think when I was 18, they started serving me drinks because I'd been around for four years. It, so it never <laughs> occurred to somebody that I had like started it. 14 as opposed to like <laughs> oh she has to be 21 by now oh <laughs> uh, that's awesome <laughs> so who uh like who are your influence would, would you say miles was an influence on you from the get-go or uh not from the get-go like i i was terrified at io as a kid um because i didn't i everybody was older everybody knew each other they were always drinking or going to bars that weren't io afterwards and i'm like there's no way so i'd always like Ah, see guys, I got, I got to go to work or whatever. <laughs> um, really lay that lie in. Yeah, yeah. I, gotta, I have to be at work at my job for money in the morning. <laughs> Insurance. I'm a lawyer. I don't. 
so, I mean, I was working with awesome, incredible people. Like, um, I was on Del Close's last uh, team that he directed, uh, which was a show called Spoo. And the story of that year is actually covered in the book Guru by Jeff Griggs, who was on that team with me. And he, I think, refers to me as the lesbian lawyer uh, <laughs> in, like, his description of the other people on that show. I could be wrong. Um because I, I haven't read it. Sorry, Jeff, if you ever never hear this. Uh, but the, yeah, I, I, everyone there in the 90s in Chicago was awesome. They were so amazing. Like, people like UCB when they were, like, forming as a group or the family or, uh, like, I think I was at the cusp of when Tina Fey started performing at Second City and Rachel Dratch. Like, it was a really awesome community uh, to be in. So I feel like my influences were all just everybody in Chicago in the very late 90s. Like, it was great. Um, and it wasn't until I got to college that I was like, oh, I want to be like Andy Kaufman uh, <laughs> and do what he's doing. And then, uh, or did. He's not doing it anymore. I don't think. He could be. He could be. Who knows? But now as a sort of mature performer, I really hate Andy Kaufman. (laughs) Uh, I think that as a kid, I didn't see how selfish he was being when he he went into a club. And I feel like there's a contract that you make with the audience. They are paying you to be entertained. And that's not to say that he wasn't entertaining people. But um, he's... I feel like he was entertaining himself and the Mm -hmm. stuff he was doing was more self-indulgent than the things that I am trying to do as a comedian now. Which is? Make money. money. (laughs) Uh, That's not self-indulgent at all. (laughs) Money's great, man. (laughs) Is that what you're trying to do now? When it comes down to it, uh, yeah, I'm not joking. That is exactly what I'm trying to do as a comedian. I'm trying to make as much money as possible in the shortest amount of time. <laughs> a, a very um, noble cause. Oh, it's not noble at all. <laughs> like, there's no, I'm, I have no one to donate it to. I'm not going to give it away to charity. My parents are healthy. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to give it to my family. I'm just going to make money day after day after day. <laughs> Scrooge McDuckett. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, it's like Happy Gilmore, but without, like, the sick grandma or whatever, or the house. <laughs> yeah. Or, like... What was uh, the, um, oh, what was that? The Goonies, except I'm just going to keep the treasure when I find <laughs> it. <laughs> um, was there ever a time that you, like, doubted yourself and your abilities as a, as a comedian in comedy? Um, I started so young that it always, it's just felt like a part of my life. Like, I wasn't. You know, my, I didn't even have boobs, I think, the first time I went <laughs> on stage. And that exposure has been very generous when it comes to a sense of self-doubt. Uh, it feels like an extension of, and I was saying this in an interview the other day, I was, uh, it feels like an extension of pretend when you were a kid. Uh, like there was a very, very easy transition between I am literally playing pretend and I am pretending in front of an audience. So I I feel like the pathways that I had as a kid are the same, on some level, the same foundation that my improv is based on, as opposed to it being like, 
uh, a set of instructions that I'm trying to follow. And if I can map out this scene, then it will succeed. It's more like, oh, cool, I'm in a kitchen now and I'm baking. That's terrible improv scene. <laughs> That's a terrible, terrible improv scene. Uh, but yeah. Is there cyanide in the cake? Yeah, there it is. There's okay. cyanide in the cake then and uh, my baby is dead. So now it's an improv scene. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's a terrible improv All right. I was curious about that. Were, were you funny as a kid? I was um, outgoing as a kid, but I wasn't trying to be funny, I don't think. I think I just I was an outgoing. My, my parents were both extremely supportive, awesome people, and they remain so to this day. They're, they're very, very like, you know, we want you to be happy. And it's more important to us that you don't, that if you're going to dedicate yourself to comedy or to writing or whatever it ends up being, that you don't have a fallback plan. That that is literally what you are moving to LA to do and we don't want you doing it half of the time or 25% of the time because you'll never make it that way. Uh, That you have to be like, look, if you're delivering groceries as a day job, you can't be too tired to do comedy in the evening. You have to still do it because that's why you're alive or that's what's making you happy or whatever. Um, And once I clarified for myself that I just wanted to make money, uh, it was a lot easier to be like, well, this this is why I'm doing doing this every day is because (laughs) maybe I'll be a little richer tomorrow. (laughs) What, uh, why, why money? Why money? Why money? Um, because I, I don't know, we didn't have it growing up, <laughs> and it's pretty neat what you can do with it. Like, I mean, the truth is that I, I feel like there are comedy shorts that I want to make that have uh, sort of oppressive budgets, uh, like the rental of a few animals or uh, the building of a set or whatever, that uh, they're cost prohibitive. Um, and if I make money, then I can finance those bits. And I see comedy as, in large ways, it's spectacle for me. Yeah. I think that my love of action movies sort of blended into, oh, I want blood and guts and chaos and, and, and like circus-style comedy more than, I mean, that's, that's not true. Not like Cirque du Soleil or like <laughs> fucking flags and shit. But flags. Yeah, don't they have like a lot of flags? Oh yeah, I guess they do. Yeah. <laughs> They're always like crawling on flags. Yeah, it's like flags and fabric or whatever. Uh no, I mean like but scratch the fabric, put in blood. Yeah. And then yeah. It's, yeah. But but I feel like when I was reading like Woody Allen's biography or whatever, like he would take uh the success that he had writing like jokes on television and immediately turn try and turn it over into like writing plays or whatever that he could produce. And I feel like Uh, It is much easier to uh, independently produce bits or whatever Mm -hmm. than it is for me to go to Funny or Die and be like, hey, I really want to write this, uh, have this sketch that involves like a horse and uh, can you guys finance that? And then they want to see the script and approve the script and then it's comedy by committee as opposed to like, this is my point of view, this is the joke, this is how I want to tell it. So, you know, if you make a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars doing a commercial uh where you're just like doing bits in front of a car and then you turn around and take that money and you invest it in something else like uh the midnight show album was possible only because i was making money somewhere else and was able to drop that cash on uh, uh financing the 
making of the CDs or whatever, or like the forming of the Midnight Show as a company was only possible because we had the budget left over from making videos. Like you have to, if you, it's not just that I want a car. Like I don't, that's not why I want money. I want money because I want to make things and not have to answer to people. That's a good answer. (laughs) That's a very, uh, it's a very independent way of looking at it. I, I like that. That makes a lot of sense to me, actually. It was like, okay, money, money, money. Uh, okay. Oh, yeah, that's why. To make your own stuff, to make it based on what you want. Right. That's awesome. I don't think a video has ever gone viral because a committee designed a viral video. <laughs> I feel like things go viral because it's one person either falling down a flight of stairs or they have one bit that they do or, or whatever it is. I, I, or a team, like a small team, like four or five people. Not to say that viral videos is the end-all, be-all of everything. <laughs> but I feel like the, you know, the success of a show like Louie is because Louie is the guy who's making the show. And it's not Louie has to answer to like 15 other people who then run his scripts through fucking dishwasher. Right. And when they come out, it's sort of just bland. Like, yes. I know he doesn't really have a lot of people watching his show, but he's getting a lot of Emmys, right? Right. Hey. <laughs> I- I love his show. So yeah, it's, it's a great show. show. It's a great show. What are you? Uh, so what are you working on now? For the people who don't know, uh, I uh, I wrote on a show that's going to be on Cartoon Network next year called Incredible Crew, which is a sketch show that sort of skews towards high school students. Uh, it's uh, like Saturday Night Live, but younger. Or there was another one that I can't remember the name of. Uh, All that. Yeah, 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 like that, but hopefully a little bit different. Because uh, that's already been a thing. Uh, and I'm also working at Fox at a uh, production company called ADHD. Or it's called Friends Night on a show called, or programming block called ADHD. Uh, which I don't know how much I can talk about. But it's <laughs> animation uh, and sort of based on the Adult Swim model of animation. And by the people who made Adult Swim happen. Right. Yeah. The um, Just like the short blocks of yeah. shows. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great, that's a good model, especially for now. Um, mm-hmm. Everybody has ADD, so, yeah. you know, oh, ADHD, that yeah. makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So it stands for Animation, Domination, and High Definition. Ah, yeah. oh, that's so perfect. For yeah. That's great. That's a great thing to be working on. It's great. It's we're, We have uh, shorts that we put up on um, YouTube, and I think our website is betaadhd.com, which will eventually be ADHD.com. Or maybe Fox ADHD. I don't know. But there are, you know, we've got shorts coming out. We've got new animated GIFs every day that are for, like, passing around, like, trading cards, I guess. <laughs> uh, it's a really exciting place to work. And uh, I love the design that's coming out and the sound. It's just awesome. Cool. And it's got that element of spectacle. Yeah, definitely. You, like. you can do whatever you want in animation, <laughs> man. Like, a boat can be a dinosaur that then is, like, a planet. I love it. It's great. <laughs> I'd love to see that in real life. Um, well, that's cool. Uh, so what, um, I'm skipping around a little bit, but uh, mm-hmm. what to you is your version of like making it? What is that? You know, like for some people, it's being on SNL or writing for SNL, but you did that. Uh, for me right now, and yeah, that definition changes, I guess. For me right now is having my own show where I'm in creative control. Whether it's live action or animated, whether it's 15 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour, doesn't matter. Right now, my goal is 
my own show where it's my voice, my point of view, and the story that I want to tell. And I'm sort of, uh, for a long time for me, that show was a sketch show in my head, but more recently it's become more narrative. I mean, not that it's literally changing shape in my head, but like the thing that I wanted for a long time and still want is, say, the midnight show on television. Uh, But it's very, very difficult to sell a sketch show without it being about something. Mm -hmm. And as much as you tell people in offices who have money that they are not giving you for your show, as much as you tell them, look, the hook on a sketch show is the, the quality of the content. And if a sketch show has great content, then that content goes viral, which advertises the show. Each piece can be broken off and put up on the internet. You, you know, it's a big circle of like self-feeding. What do you call that snake that's eating itself? Like that. that. Uh, Symbiotic relationship. Yeah. Uh, that it's very hard unless it's like, but it's all set on a boat. Unless <laughs> you do that, like it's very hard to sell a sketch show. Um, and I'm, because I like making money, uh, interested in selling an idea. And so I, all of my pitches recently have been more narrative. Oh. Yeah. oh. You've kind of figured that out that that works. Yeah, yeah. 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 Do you like st- – Narratives, though? Yes and no. I, I like narratives that uh, have a beginning, middle, and end. Mm-hmm. And the shows that I am pitching to uh, people have a beginning, middle, and end. They are not indefinite sitcoms. I don't like indefinite sitcoms. I think that the potency of the BBC office actually comes down to the fact that it basically told one story. And it was a story of a relationship and the, you know, the relationship falling apart and then coming back together and then finally like climaxing in the Christmas special. And that if you continued past that point, like you're just diluting the water and the reason it became an international, like there's so many fucking versions of the office everywhere is I think because of the story. I don't think it's because of people talking to a camera in an office, Mm -hmm. but unless you go into something saying, I want to tell one story then people are like, oh, and then like the next season this can happen and the next season that can happen. Uh, it's not as interesting to me. Cool. All right. <laughs> um, so Saturday Night Live. You knew this was coming. Yep. <laughs> because people are curious. I know you've, you've I, I've heard you talk a bit about it, um, uh, but I guess not everybody has. So what what was it like? I know that's a broad question, but... Um, Saturday Night Live is an amazing experience full of the most talented people you'll ever get a chance to work with. Like, from the the costume people, the set designers, the people who choose the color palette. I don't even know what the name is of those people. I guess just designers. (laughs) The musicians, the voiceover people, the alacrity with which that show is produced every week is astonishing. Um... I believe, uh, and I had a, I had a, I'm amazed and flattered and eternally grateful that I got the opportunity to be in that family, uh, because that's something that's just always going to be with me. Um, But in my, my personal interests are, I mean, if I'm doing sketch, is for stuff that's a lot shorter, Mm -hmm. because I feel like uh, 
and one of one of the things they say when you go into SNL is, that, oh, we want stuff shorter. We want stuff shorter. We want stuff shorter. But it all always ends up being like longer segments, right? Which are more like almost like one act plays on a theme or mm. scenes as opposed to sketches. Like I feel like sketch comedy is stuff done by like people like the state or Key and Peele yeah. or like they're they're bits as opposed to full like. This happens, and then this happens, and then that happens, and then that happens. And that feels more like when you write for Saturday Night Live, you're writing for Saturday Night Live. You're not writing for a sketch show. Uh, so it's very different. Yeah, it's a different, it's a different muscle. Um, it's like the difference between, you know, writing for uh, a school play that's – or like a, like a school talent show where uh, you're sort of commenting on – oh, remember when the high school guy did this with that person and then you do like a small scene about that thing? That's a little bit like what Saturday Night Live is like. Um, and it was described to me that way by, by a friend and I was like, yeah, that's, that's kind of what it is because their school is celebrities and politics and you're doing plays about those things as opposed to sketches about those things. Like it's not just here's a dude who's a shark. You know, it used to be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and But it's awesome. And the people that I worked with there are like, I have no, no, nothing negative to say about any of the human beings that I worked with at Saturday Night Live. I just feel like the the process might need to shift in order to accommodate the uh, decreasing attention spans of people who have access to the internet and can watch <laughs> Sketch, like, you know, it used to be the only place that you could watch sketch comedy, but now there's YouTube and you can literally watch infinite sketch comedy by infinite people. So there has to be something, I feel, other than just that there are celebrities in those sketches to make Saturday Night Live feel hungry again. Ooh, Ooh I like that. Feel mm -hmm. hungry. That's interesting. Well, I mean, of course they are a slave to the commercial, and so... I, I don't, I mean, like, I don't... I don't see it as they're they're not really slaves to anything. I mean, Lorne Michaels is awesome. He uh he he has a he fights for things. He fights against censors. He fights for you and your ideas in in the room or during the show. Like my very first thing that I was the lead writer on while I was working at the show, like Lorne Michaels sat down with me during a commercial break. And was working on the sketch with me. And that was crazy. It, you know, like that's that's how much he still cares about the show. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I didn't mean like, I didn't mean like sl slave to the commercial, like yeah. commercialized, but like as in the format of the show. Yeah. Stuck yeah. in that kind of. They don't have to. Yeah. They don't have to have that format. They could do stunts during that show if they wanted. They could oh. do anything. Stunts? Okay. You know what I mean? Like, I think there was, I read once that they had talked to Johnny Knoxville back when Jackass was happening about before, right before Jackass got bought by MTV about doing stunts on stage. And that would be like a thing, you know, or like the way they used to have like alternative comics yeah. early on. Like come Andy in, Kaufman. Like Kaufman come in and do like a bit. Like, I feel like the show can be whatever it wants. And right now it's uh, more shackled to the, 
we open with a political sketch and then we do something that's like a talk show and then we do something that is uh, a little bit weirder and then maybe there's a game show it, like it feels like it's it just needs to be shaken up a little bit maybe i don't know it's it's fucking super it does great in the ratings like it's like the <laughs> highest the first half hour of snl is like the highest rated half hour anywhere on television any week that's amazing yeah so they're doing they're doing fine did you have any – do you feel like after SNL you had, uh, like, more opportunities? Like, people looked at you in a different light as yeah. far as writing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it's a lot easier to to say, uh, oh, I, you know, I want to work here. And I work – I wrote for Saturday Night Live. They're like, oh, cool. Then they think that you're a – I don't know, that you know what, what's happening with <laughs> comedy more than if you're like – yeah, I made this video and it got like three million views, and uh, I do this weekly show, and I, I, none of that matters as much, even though it's the same writing yeah. on both sides of the uh, of the employment. It's like I was still writing the same stuff before SNL as I am now. It's just, you know, sometimes you'll be in a room and it, it's <laughs> it's a it's a brand, yeah, it's a logo on your credit. <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> so you've um. As far as like schools of comedy, like you know, classes that you took while you were coming up, um, like what what schools did you go through? Um, I uh, let's see, what did I? All the places I did comedy, uh, Improv Olympic in Chicago, uh, the Meow Show at Northwestern uh, was a great education. That's like half sketch, half improv. Great education in comedy. Um, good grief. Uh, let's see. I did, uh, Comedy Dojo, which doesn't exist out here anymore, um, but was a, uh, school from, uh, Chris Barnes, who I think is in, on the East Coast now. Um. And where was that? That was, he had a, a theater in Santa Monica. Oh, okay. Which, during the days, was a place where you did karate. Oh. That's why it was called the Comedy Dojo. Oh. Um. Uh, Ultimate Improv in Westwood with uh, J.D. Walsh, which started in the Westwood Brewing Company, and then uh, they got their own space, and it's now the improv space, as you know. Mm -hmm. uh, let's see. The Groundlings, UCB, I.O. West, Boom Chicago, uh, independent stuff with, like, directors from Acme. Mm -hmm. uh, like, we worked for six or seven months on a format that never, ever made it to stage. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess... I, is that I think that's it. I think I feel like there's stuff I'm forgetting. So you've had a very well-rounded yes uh, education in comedy. Yes. Where where do you feel like you clicked with like that school of thought the most? None of them. None of them. Uh, All of them and all none of them. them. Yeah, I feel like uh, each each improv school is going to t tell you that what they're doing is the way you do comedy. Mm -hmm. Like uh, the groundlings will say, Oh, this character is how you do comedy. And UC Bill say game is how you do comedy. And I was about like organic discovery of the sort of moments between people that then you heighten or, or stretch out. But the truth is that uh, every scene needs a different tool, I think. And you keep all those different tools on your tool belt and you take them out for whatever the scene requires or whatever the story requires or whatever the joke requires. And you do yourself the greatest favor by being agnostic to the theaters as opposed to a slave to any individual point of view. I don't think it makes you better to be like 100% the Groundlings or 100% UCB. It might not 
make you very popular within the hierarchy of the schools to be like, oh, this is great. I'm going to go over to UCB and do a show now. And then, <laughs> oh, this was awesome. I'll be over at IO. Like, that's not going to win you any points with like the various artistic directors or whatever. But I think it makes you better as an, as an individual creator of content. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've taken stuff from each place. That's awesome. And I'm so happy that I learned it. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I didn't, I've never, I guess of them, UCB is the most relaxed when it comes to, if you come to them with a show, it doesn't have to be a UCB style show. It can mm -hmm. be like a one person show or a group or an improv thing or a sketch or stand up or audio. Like they're more interested in that the show is good than that it's, you know, a UCB style show. Right. Whereas I don't feel like you could do a live on stage podcast at the Groundlings. No, yeah, <laughs> probably not. Um, speaking of Groundlings, you got pretty far with Groundlings, didn't you? Yeah, I was in the Sunday company for uh, six months. They uh, give you a year and a half at uh, at the most. Uh, I was uh, I was cut, I think, a little early. Um, <laughs> but you know, I wasn't providing them with whatever it is that they needed at the time. Uh, so. You know. What do you think they needed? I have no idea, man. <laughs> I got no idea. Was that disappointing? Uh, well, uh, while I was in the Sunday company, I was doing six shows a night or six shows a, a week. Uh, and it was not, it didn't feel like, I felt like, because you have to pay to be in the Sunday company. Mm -hmm. And mostly it just felt like, oh, this is less bills that I have to take care of. <laughs> but I enjoyed performing in each of those shows equally. So it didn't, like, I, I got the call that I wasn't in the show while I was doing Armando at I.O. Because they call you the next day and they're like, hey, you know, congratulations, you're extended for an additional six months. Or, uh, hey, we're so sorry, you know, you were awesome, but you didn't fit in here, whatever the hell. <laughs> uh, you don't really find out. They vote on who stays or who doesn't stay or whatever. Um, and I was at, I was at, uh, intermission at Armando and it was like, oh, cool. Thanks, man. Uh, sorry it didn't work out. And then I went back out on stage and did a different show. I'm pretty sure if it had been the only fucking thing in my life <laughs> You'd be that like, I would have been like, oh my God, what did I spend all this time? And also it takes so long to get through that program. It takes years, years and years and years to get, I, I started the Groundlings before I went to Boom Chicago for three years. Oh, wow. And there was a waiting list of like two years. And so I went off and had an entirely different, complete life experience in between whatever, like level three and level four or whatever. I forget the like advanced or scene workshop or whatever. Uh, and that's crazy. The people who are like waiting all that time yeah. to get that slot. And then it's, they got it. And it's like, oh, am I going to get in this Sunday company? Oh, thank God I got this. There's only like two or three slots in the main company available at any given <laughs> moment. Like, you know, it's, and there might be a blonde chick in there. So they're not going to put another blonde chick in or whatever, you know? Yeah. So you can't like put all your eggs in that basket. Yeah, dude. Don't, any basket. don't put your eggs, all your eggs in any basket. You, we have enough capacity as, as people that you can focus completely on more than one thing. You don't have to like, be like, oh, if I compromise my attention by 
writing one show and then also writing another show every week, then both those shows aren't going to be as good. That's not true. Like we, that's like saying, oh, you, you only have finite songs that you can sing as a human being and you can just whistle. <laughs> I don't know what I'm, where I'm going with this. <laughs> <laughs> I get a finite. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so boom, Chicago. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. How was that? Like, um, that, that was a you, different experience than something here in America. Uh, what did you learn from that? Uh, wow. What did I learn from boom? I learned how to be, uh, professional. Uh, boom is very much about, um, the deployment of your sketches and the deployment of your personality on stage, how you come across to an audience. What is the best way to present your yourself to an audience? What looks good and sells good as a comedian? Uh, it is about getting the most amount of laughs in that hour and a half, two hour show. It is not about, uh, giving the audience some kind of cathartic experience. It is like, uh, you can compromise the integrity of a sketch if it gets more laughs during that sketch. Uh, laughter is the currency in that theater. And for good reason. They're, you know, it's a business. And they're trying to make money as opposed to, there are no, I mean, there's a class program and they, they do these like corporate shows where you go out and you teach like businessmen at AFG or whatever how to improvise. But it's the theater itself is, a business. It is not that they make money through classes. You have to sell that show every night and you have to sell 350 to 400 seats of that show every night of the week and twice on Saturdays. So it's it's a business. And when you come out and you introduce a sketch or you introduce an improv game or you introduce the long form segment of the show, you have to be able to convey to a mixed audience of like people varying degrees of whether or not they can speak English and they're like the people in Italy and the people in Australia and the people in Holland and the Americans and the British people all have to be like I understand what's going to happen next and I can follow these jokes so that I can laugh at the jokes and have a good time uh so it's it's about packaging as much as it is about the potency oh that that's awesome. Yeah. I want to go there. <laughs> <laughs> and that was in Amsterdam? Yeah, it's in Amsterdam. It's a, uh, it's a theater that was started by uh, people from Northwestern, like in the 90s. Uh, they went to Amsterdam. They're like, oh, we can open up a comedy theater here. And I think the Dutch government said, there's no way this is going to be successful. Are you out of your minds? <laughs> like, I don't think that improv existed in Holland before Boom Chicago as like a thing. Wow. Just like the way, you know, it, I mean, it didn't really exist before the 60s or whatever in America. Uh, and they were like, well, we're going to do it anyway. And now it's the 20-year anniversary of the company is coming up next June. Uh, so fuck you, Holland. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, awesome. Pitching the Midnight Show. Yeah, Pitching the Midnight Show. Um, the Midnight Show is uh, my favorite thing that I do. Um, it is... Uh, a group of like-minded people uh, who have a very similar opinion on what makes comedy good and what used to make comedy good and what can make comedy good again, uh, taking the best parts of shows from the 70s and shows from the 80s and the 90s and translating that for a modern, younger, faster audience. Um, 
when it came to pitching the Midnight Show, uh, there I was often the only girl uh, in the room, um, or the only girl on our side of the table. So it was uh, easy to have a focal point when it came to you know. It's like I became sort of the natural talker in the room because it was like, oh, that's the girl. As opposed to like, oh, there's a couple of fat guys. Which one am I looking at? <laughs> I don't remember which one is which. But oh, Heather's the girl. So it's easy to talk. And, it, you know, it makes everybody a little bit more comfortable, I guess. Yeah. But I don't think it was, I, I think it was uh, sort of just, it wasn't that I was naturally better talking about the midnight show than anybody else in the room. It was just easier that way, I guess. Maybe. I don't know. I'm also very passionate about the show. so <laughs> That helps a yeah. lot. You are passionate. Yeah. I love that. I'm, you, like, yeah, you're you're such a great, like, all of your sketches uh, on that show are so good. Thank That's you. so good. Well, I fucking love, I love so doing good. that show, man. I love doing that show. Uh, when we got that slot four years ago at UCB, it was a dead dead zone it was like well you guys can have this midnight slot on saturdays <laughs> and now the show sells out in advance every month mm-hmm. and the reason for that is that like the when michael bush and uh eric Moneypenny and when they when they talk about the show that they want it's those guys i guess went to college together and so they both come to, to comedy from a very similar place when they articulate that to to everybody else, like no sketches should be longer than three minutes. Uh, when I first went to the Midnight Show, I was writing seven page sketches because I was also doing the fucking Groundlings, where you can write like a half hour sketch. Not really. <laughs> uh, and so that was like a, a a shift in the sort of foundation of what I thought comedy was or what it could be. They're like, we want stuff that's visually interesting. We want stuff where people aren't just sitting down and talking to one another. All of these sort of like guidelines that those guys gave to all of us made it so that we all knew exactly what the show was supposed to be and we could all work towards that end. As opposed to like sketch shows where it's like, yeah, we're just going to meet like once a week and like kind of come up with some funny ideas. It's like always been with a, like a, an end in mind, which is this punk rock enthusiastic experience where you go from bit to bit to bit with the shortest blackouts possible. And at one point we didn't even have, like we had stuff during the blackouts on the screens so that it always felt like there was a momentum to the show. And when you go into something and it's that clearly set out, it's so much easier to work for it than it is like, like that show that I mentioned earlier where it's like we spent six months rehearsing <laughs> a form that we didn't know what the fucking form was. And then at the end of the six months, it was like, well, I guess we're just not going to do this because we can't find our way. Like, it, it, you can't just wander around in a hedge maze. You have to be trying to get to the other side. Uh, to those listeners who uh, have never seen The Midnight Show or don't know what it is, uh, it's a sketch show here at the UCB uh, LA, and uh, it's on midnights on the first Saturday of every month. And um, It's it also is- themidnightshow.net. Uh, we have two YouTube channels. Uh, and we just finished a uh, national tour with Drew Carey presents the best of the Midnight Show, and they have an album, and we have an album, yeah, and it's great. Thank you. Uh, I love your show. Uh, the Midnight Show is what um, 
but really, uh, really inspired me to start doing sketch comedy. So uh, because of that, because of those reasons, because I had seen some sketch shows before, and I was like, okay, sketch comedy. Um, but that show in particular, like, if I felt like I was at a rock concert. Like, like I was excited by that show, mm-hmm. uh, and each sketch was was so fast paced and so like to the point, um, and so I love I love the Midnight Show. Oh, so. Thanks, yeah. I, I really love it too. It's <laughs> changed my life. I, if I hadn't been in the Midnight Show, I don't think I would. I mean, it's not entirely certain, but I don't think I would have been hired for Saturday Night Live if I hadn't been a part of that show. And it's also, I mean, Abby Elliott uh, on Saturday Night Live w- did the Midnight Show. Um, We've had uh, Ryan Perez used to write for the Midnight Show, and he mm-hmm. wrote for Saturday Night Live. Like we've had a really nice turnover from that. I feel like someday somebody's going to write an art. Once all of the Midnight Show people are famous and we all have <laughs> our own shows or whatever, there's going to be like a Rolling Stone article that's like, "Can you believe that all these guys used to be in the same group together? How did it never get on television?" And that's an indictment of the television industry. <laughs> I don't understand. Well, I, I mean, you explaining that people want a, um, want you, a theme. Yeah, you want a hook to the show. And also, you don't want uh, to work with, if you're ever making a sketch show, don't have a bunch of people who uh, are all, um, let, me, let me try that again. If you're going to make a sketch show, don't have everybody in the show represented by different agencies and different management mm-hmm. companies. Have one single manager and agent that can be the go-between between you and a network because, you know, everybody in that show is represented by somebody else. And if I was a network and I looked at the theoretical amount of paperwork that was going to have to happen in order to make the minute show, I'd be like, fuck this. We can get a show <laughs> with like three dudes from Ohio and put that on TV and it would be so much easier than having to go through UTA, Principato, Brillstein, like all these different, like William Morris, everybody, everybody in the show is repped by somebody else. <laughs> so that's part problem one. Problem two is that there's too many people in the show. Yeah. Like if there were three of us and we each had different agents, fine. But part of what makes the show fast is that there are enough people that you don't have to wait for people to change during blackouts. That's mm-hmm. kind of a sort of a secret of the show is that things can turn over very quick. Cause if there are three people on stage, there are three people getting ready for another sketch backstage and three people who aren't in that sketch in the wings. So things can just turn over very quickly. But when it comes to making a TV show, you don't need, you can edit out the blackouts. Right. Um, and we sort of, I'm, none of us want to do the show with only like, four of us on TV, you know, like you wouldn't, we wouldn't want it to be like the midnight show starring these four people and also written by a couple other people that you never see. And there we have some guest stars. Like we want, (laughs) we want it to be us if we're going to ever do it. I was going to bring something up about gender roles. Well, I guess, I mean, this is a podcast about women in comedy Mm. and not, um, you know, not to say that women in comedy are, are any different from men in comedy, but it is. You know, there's that argument about, you know, are women are women funny? And what's your what's your take on all of that? I don't think women are funny. I think <laughs> uh, generally speaking, women, you know, there's less women in comedy because it's harder for women to be funny. It's, you know, they have difficulty telling a joke, you know, because it's hard for women to speak. They're much better at, like, uh, you know, using their mouths to suck dick all day long 
Yep. <laughs> <laughs> for no, but for for real, <laughs> for real. Uh, I think that. Uh, I've never felt like a woman in comedy. I've just felt like a comedian. Right. Um, the only time I've ever felt like a woman in comedy is when I was in an all-woman show. Mm-hmm. And then it was like, oh, that's what the hook is of the show is that we're all girls. Um, I think that there are less women in comedy than men. And I'm from my experience, which is I've never been on a team that's like eight girls and one dude. But mm-hmm. I've been on infinite teams that are six dudes and one chick. Right. Uh, and I think it's just that when you're young, women are socialized different from men. And that's all it comes down to. Like, uh, I watched this, I think it's Nova special once about, uh, concept of mooks and midriffs. Mooks being a type of guy who, uh, like is loud and, Shows off. Nice. That's, that's good. That's mookish Ooh, of you. Ooh, goat cheese. Uh, that was that one. That's gross. what that was. So gross. <laughs> uh, and that girls are sort of pressured when they're young to, like, show more skin or to be sexier. And that, that, that you can't... I don't think you can be sexy and funny at the same time. It's two different things you're trying to aim for. I don't think that women in comedy can't be sexy... But I think that you, that if you're trying to tell a joke, you shouldn't also be trying to do something else at the same time. Mm-hmm. And being sexy is something that you are doing. Uh, I don't think, does that make sense? Absolutely. I, you know, like, so if you're on stage to get dudes to look at your ass, they aren't listening to your jokes. Mm-hmm. And if a, if a guy is on stage and he's flexing his muscles, you're thinking about how much time he spends at the gym, you're mm-hmm. not listening to the jokes he's telling. Yeah. And it's the same you know, on both sides. It's like, so when, when men are being pressured when they're young to be outgoing and vocal and loud, mm-hmm. those are traits that are more easily transferable in comedy. It's like, oh, this is a loud, crazy presence on stage. Women are pressured, I think, this is real big blanket statements, but I feel like it's just a different social pressure of, you know, of how to get attention. Right. Lennon, uh, Lennon Parham said that, uh, said something similar to that. It was like growing up, you're, you're so, you are socialized different as a woman. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot more difficult for women to get into comedy because you have to break through this, like, like this personal barrier of, you know, learning how to just let go of, being a woman yeah you know um yeah because i because similarly like i don't when i see you on stage or when i see you in videos i don't see you as a woman and i just see you as somebody in comedy um and i know there there is a difference there are female comedians who i view as like oh that's a female comedian and Mm. even this is like you know a podcast for women but specifically because i want to represent all of the women Mm -hmm. who are in comedy and who are kicking ass and doing what they do as you do thank you you're welcome what are your favorite sketches that you've written and that you have seen uh i have a sketch that i haven't been able to produce yet because it is financially prohibitive um it is my favorite sketch that i've ever written 
I believe it is the reason I got hired for Saturday Night Live was this one sketch. Uh, and when I have enough money, I will make it, and then everyone will get to see it. So you can think back to me saying <laughs> that that was my favorite sketch, and you'll know because it will be obviously expensive. And the reason they didn't put it up at Saturday Night Live was that it was expensive. <laughs> can um, you give me one thing in there that can be a telling factor? It involves a horse. Okay. Uh, right. So that's my favorite thing I've ever written. Uh, I'm... I don't know, man. Like, uh, I guess I'm I'm happy with the success of a sketch like Drive Recklessly. Like, that's it's an it's a nice calling card. It's an easy and obvious joke that you don't see coming, but it's also not confusing. Yes. You know, it's not like you have to know things about other things in order to get the joke. It's just here's the joke, and there it is, and surprise. Um, there have been more complicated stage pieces that I've done uh, involving special effects that I'm fond of. Uh, the sketch that I did with James Pumphrey where um, he uh, was uh, protecting trade secrets in a business meeting. And uh, they, they were, we were about to do a PowerPoint presentation. And uh, the... I had to leave to grab coffee for somebody, but he and I were going to give the PowerPoint presentation. I leave the room. Hal and Nick uh, start pressuring him about like, oh man, can you give us any like any tips about what's going to be in this presentation? And he treats it like it's like the atomic bomb. Like he's like, I can't tell you guys. Don't make me do this. Don't make me, you know, <laughs> don't make me reveal a truth that I'm not allowed to do. And he eventually ends up stabbing himself in the stomach because he'd rather die than betray this PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> and we built intestines that poured out of him uh, onto stage. And uh, I come out and I'm like, oh God, why'd you make him do it? Why'd you make him do it? <laughs> and there's this like dramatic music playing the whole time and dies in my arms. And I'm like covered in his guts. Uh, and the last thing he asks is that I get, still give the presentation. <laughs> and so covered in intestines i give a presentation about like the third quarter earnings for cheetos and that's the whole thing and it was so much fun to perform and like it hits all the different things that i like it, it's violent it's emotional there was a love story uh there's an abs totally absurd moment of like blood and like pie charts. <laughs> <laughs> like I loved doing that sketch. Uh, and one other sketch I'll reference uh, that I've only gotten to do once but hope to do again was um, a sketch that I actually wasn't in, uh, which was called uh, Who Wants to Fuck a Fifth Grader? And it was a <laughs> game show. <laughs> a game show where the, the host was having a nervous breakdown because he couldn't believe that they'd made it past the pilot. <laughs> and that was the whole thing. Like, you know, it was just his, like, he would scream at the audience, like, why are you people here? What, what were they just giving away free tickets on Hollywood and none of you were paying attention? He screamed at the returning champion for like five, for like five, well, not five minutes, but like a full beat of the sketch was him just yelling at Hal, like, you're a returning champion, you sick fuck. Like, <laughs> like you know, I don't even think you ever got to the game show. It was just the concept of like, how did we get to the second <laughs> episode of this show? <laughs> His management had dropped him. He's like, you know, I 
when I saw the script, I thought it was a bit. So I went in to read for the pilot. And now I'm, now I'm on national television. How is this on national television? It's a lot of fun. Oh, that's great. I'm going to, I'm going to post a picture of a, there's a great picture. Who took that of the James with the, the I think that was, uh, 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 I think it was Estepona. Um, Liesl was here. Liesl oh, was yeah. here. Uh, she's, a, she's awesome. She has a book uh, of the photos that she's taken at UCB. It's a great coffee table book. Uh, the Midnight Show is in it, uh, which is pretty cool because there's also people like Zach Galifianakis and stuff in that book. Um, but her photography is unbelievable. Look her up on Flickr. I will. Yeah. How different is it for you? Like how like how do you feel doing short form improv because it's such a like it's a different beast? Um I I love short form. Uh when you're in a when you're in a scene, it's still hopefully it's still a scene no matter whether it's in a larger piece of long form or it's a short form. Mm-hmm. I mean the rules still the rules still apply of like you know, you're trying to interact with and communicate with your scene partner and whether you're on stage like being told to forward or reverse or like you know switch genres or whatever Mm -hmm. like you're still trying any of those short form games won't work well if you don't know who those people are to each other where they are and and what their problem is uh so in that way it's it's still like long form it's just that half the time somebody's telling you to change like they're screaming new choice at you through a microphone or whatever, or, or you're physically being moved by audience members. But if you, if those two people aren't like in love or falling out of love or, you know, are boss and an employee, or if there's not some human interaction at the core of that, then it doesn't, it doesn't matter if it's like, if there's a bell ringing or like right. it's half in song. Cause it doesn't, nobody cares about it. Uh, Improvaganza feels exactly like a boom show to mm-hmm. me. It feels they're very, and the reason that like uh, Colton Dunn is uh, in the cast now or part of the rotating, because there's a huge cast of people that get picked from, uh, is because the transition from boom to Improvaganza is so easy. It's the same short form stuff. It's the same like you need to make sure that you're clear with what's happening so that all of these people some of whom have never seen improv before in their lives and think the whole thing is written. Like, the, you need to be able to present your ideas to those people. And sometimes you go cheap because you want to give them their money's worth. And it's like, well, you say butt fuck here. Chances are 90% of this audience is going to laugh and they're going to be happy that they came to see the show. So I'll say <laughs> butt fuck once. Uh, but... You know, it's still you're still trying to balance, I guess. Yeah. The the my desire to be like, oh, I want to do a scene about like a war veteran that comes home after 25 years in, in a POW camp. Uh, but you can, you know, like in, in that scene, it's like, well, how'd they torture you? They butt fucked me. Okay, <laughs> great. So we both, <laughs> I got what I wanted, and the audience got what they wanted. <laughs> uh, how would you do that scene for a um for uh? one of the shows you're working on now. Oh, it'd just be real sad. Real, real sad. Ju- real sad, no jokes. Uh, uh, fades to fades to gray instead of black and then fades out. Is that for Midnight Show would be like that? All, all the other shows. All even even for teenagers? Yeah, for teenagers. All the, all, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, I'm interested in the different take of 
<laughs> the war veteran coming home. Well, a war veteran coming home for the for the teenage show would be a, a veteran of World of Warcraft, like a kid who'd never been out of his out of his like video game room, coming back and being like the things I've seen in Azeroth, or I don't even I've never played that fucking game, <laughs> uh, which is funny because I'm a big video game nerd, but no, not for fucking World of Warcraft. God, is that game ugly? Um, but so that's how you do it for teenagers. In the midnight show, it would be like, you know, war veteran comes back and, uh, you know, walks in on, on, off the top of my head. It would be, they walk in on their bedroom. The wife is sleeping with another dude and he's just so tired. He just wants to sleep with them. And it's like, please just, can I just please lay down? (laughs) (laughs) And they're like, you're not mad. He's like, no, I was, I was, like, the, they put me in coach, and then I was on a train. Like, that would be how I'd do it for the midnight show. Because it would be in some way sadder, but, you know, everything's on stage. Maybe he's, like, trying to find a place to put his gun, like, on the bed. And the, um, I don't know. Who else? Who else uh, for a cartoon, it would be a lot of flashbacks, because you can do anything. But uh, Groundlings, if it was in a Groundlings show? The Groundlings show, uh, the war hero would have a limp. And he'd have a funny voice, uh, and he'd be, uh, he'd be really, uh, I don't, I don't know, man. That's why they kicked me out of that show. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, that's awesome. And Drew is like, you guys are BFFs now. Yeah, Drew's, Drew's awesome. Uh, and I'm lucky to be a friend of his and for him to be my friend. Uh, it was, uh, uh. Yeah, I mean that's he's he's a friend, and it's weird because you know if you told me when I moved to LA, hey dude, some someday you're gonna be hanging out with Drew Carey in <laughs> Vegas, I'd be like, the fuck happened to me? <laughs> uh, but uh, but it's great. He's 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 awesome, and I have a lot of respect for his. He's very driven. The dude does not have free time, uh, and I, as somebody else who doesn't have free time, I really respect somebody who's like. If he's got time to fill, he'll take a class. He'll learn an instrument. He'll pick up an art form. He'll uh, learn about photography or Photoshop. He wants to live his whole life in a whole way. And that's awesome. I don't like people who can just fill a day with not learning something or making something or doing something. And I don't think that makes us compulsive. I just think it's like there's there's two ways to live. You either love the act of being alive or you let life happen to you. Uh, And he's very much about like loving life. And you are too. Yeah, me too, man. I love life. So do you ever take days off where you just This is my day off. This This is my... Like t- t- Saturday, I didn't have to work, so I woke up. I uh, direct, I helped direct a sketch show. Came home, do a podcast. I got to pack my bags because I'm going to Chicago tomorrow morning. Like this is my day off. <laughs> Maybe I'll uh, take a few uh, hours and eat some sushi or something. That's how I relax. Yeah. Never sleep in. Never get to the just. Dude, it's been so fucking long since I slept in. It's unbelievable. Oh, I get like fully eight hours. Yeah, I get eight hours. Seven and a half. I aim for seven and a half. Seven's too short. Eight's too long. Seven and a half. How, uh, health-wise, uh, I know this is kind of random, but I feel like this plays into all of this. Like, like, how do you eat? What do you Like, what do you eat? How do you eat? Do you exercise? What do you... Right now I'm exercising because I am uh, 
running my first half marathon in January. Mm-hmm. I hate running. I hate it. Uh, and Why I, do you hate it? Because it's so boring. Yes. <laughs> it's so boring. And I put on a podcast or something and it's like, Oh, the whole time I'm just like, I, I'm bored doing this. You can't do anything while you're running. And if they could like put me in a machine where I ran all day, but I could also be like writing or something, I'd be great. I'd love it. But it's so boring. Like, it, and it makes whatever you're listening to boring. Like, even if it's a great book and you're listening to a book while you run, because I've listened to books trying to make it less boring while I run, it, it makes the books boring. <laughs> so I hate running, but I'm running a half marathon in January because of a bet. Um, so that's why I'm running. But food-wise, I uh, I try and live a low-carb lifestyle because sugar is bad for your brain, and I want my brain to stick around for as long as possible. Um, I wish that they made. I wish there was. I love cereal. I have collected cereal boxes my mm-hmm. whole life. Uh, cause my dream kitchen someday will have framed, what do you call those light boxes or whatever oh, Framed yeah, shadow box, shadow boxes. Yeah. Frame shadow boxes of all the different cereals all the way around the top of the kitchen, but I don't eat cereal anymore. And it's such a bummer cause it's one of my favorite things in the world, but it's really bad for you. Cereal is, it's bad for you, man. <laughs> uh, so, and I take a lot of vitamins. So my gift of X. Is not gonna checks like money. <laughs> <laughs> checks is in the cereal, the rice cereal. Oh, it's gluten free, oh, yeah, you know. Right. Yeah, no, 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 bad for you. It's bad for you. Yes, this is a solid ending now that we've covered cereal. <laughs> Great. Well, it's so nice. Thank you guys so much for having me on this. And... No, oh my gosh, thank you so much uh, to take your day off. And I know this is a pleasure for you to dot and to have something that you're doing, right? It's awesome. Yeah, it's great. great. I'd rather be doing this than talking to myself. <laughs> <laughs> you talk to yourself? Uh, doesn't everyone? Oh, okay, cool. All right, well, that's it. Um, Goodbye, uh, everybody. <laughs> uh, once again, this was Heather Ann Campbell. Thank you so much for coming on the Comedy Girl Crush podcast. Thank you. Um, make sure uh, there's a subscribe button on this page, on this iTunes page, so hit it and subscribe because there will be more. There will be blood. Subscribe. Subscribe.